Welcome to Runners Radio. What an absolute bloody cracker of a guest we have today. Olympian Chris McCarthy. He won the Commonwealth Games bronze medal in 2002. His story is an absolute ripper and we can't wait to hear from the great man. But first, the media mogul, the Twitter sensation. Welcome, Mick Sharkey. Rick, how are you, mate? It's, just a, it's a bit like the... Uh, um I don't know how you'd describe my sporting career. Certainly no Olympics. I don't think I've ever got a participation medal. Would mediocre be a despite word? Despite participating. Would mediocre be a word you might use? Um, look, the P word was often thrown around, particularly during footy potential. Potential. But it was often followed by but. There's a lot. Of- which is not, that's not what you want when somebody says, listen, you've got good potential, but. Whenever the word but comes after anything, it's... Not usually a good sign. Would some of your would another adjective be insipid? No, it was better than insipid. Okay. There were there are often good excuses, and I just didn't really like shark. We think you got good potential, but, but. you only weigh seventy one kilos, yeah. so you might get killed in the field of play. Sheed. Shark, we think you got good potential, but you are not fast enough. Shark, we think you got good potential, but stop trying to have sex with the captain's wife. Yeah, the shark. Never you know a good what I mean? Start. Never a good start. Never a good start when you're trying to um, bone your. It's always te- a butt. Your teammates' wives, mate. But look, not what, in the butt, but just butt. What would you? I'd hope so. What would you? What would you um, give now to be seventy-one kilos, Shark? I'd, I'd well, actually, I'd think. And here's a question I've wanted to ask you for a while. Yes. We see the mature age footballer has yes. sort of made a bit of a, a comeback. Yes. In the. Uh, in the AFL the last few years. Not everyone's getting drafted at 17 and 18 and going on. We've got that, that Brody Meyer check fella, 24, gets drafted. He's going to play in a grand final for Collingwood this weekend. Uh, numerous examples throughout the league of, of those sort of guys. Footballers in particular, can you, and, and athletes in particular, your body matures at different rates. Absolutely. I, I reckon, and not saying I'm going to go play footy again, but if I was playing footy again, I feel like I'm stronger now at 35 than I was at 27, which is weird because you'd expect at 27 you'd be near your peak. Uh, well, it's with with Australian rules football, it's it's it, it is very diverse. But just on that very quickly, you've been training now with our system for, for six years, so I'd hope you're definitely better at 35. Like most, a lot of athletes do peak in their mid to late 30s. Distance runners pass that again because we're talking specifically Aussie rules. We've had a lot in here that have been drafted into the AFL and now. Are making very, very, very good careers in professional football, having previously driven forklifts, uh, worked in factories at 18, 19. They just take longer to develop, whether it's emotionally, mentally, physically. Sometimes it's just luck of the draw. So you're talking about Brody Mycheck, but Nick Newman, who we've worked with for six years, he, he got drafted at 20, yeah. and now he's 24, playing some great footy. Mick Hibbard, I was working with him when he was driving forklifts for 400 bucks a week. Wow. And now he's played 150 games. He's an All-Australian, and he played in a prelim on the weekend. So a lot of those fellas take longer to develop, and I've got no doubt you've got three young daughters and, and life and business takes over, but if you were to have the same time you had to play footy, you'd be a much better footballer now. But that's just about life and process. And it's funny, the culture of the sport too and what the different sports view as being uh, optimum or too old, you know, that sort of thing. And, you know, I work with racehorses every day, so sort of always come back to that. And in Australia, we love to have horses up and racing at two, Mm. literally two years old. Some of them haven't even turned two when the season says they're two. In the UK, in the jumps racing, you can have a horse have its first start, and many of them do, at age seven. 
Yeah, it's, and they'll race on from seven to 13 and 14 and be completely sound and completely strong because they view the adult mature, um, fully developed horse as the better product than the little fast zippy two-year-old that we like here in Australia. So chalk and cheese in terms of that comparison, but yeah, you, you wonder the culture, the, the mindset of coaches and recruiters and whatnot, what that does to the, uh, to the talent pool in terms of, oh, you know, I'm too old for this or oh, this is my time. I wonder if players like Mycheck will spur more guys on from the, the VFL and suburban leagues to have a, a really good crack at the, the next preseason and upcoming draft. I think in the last decade, it's it's definitely gone full circle. So definitely, in the early two thousands, uh, you thought you were too old at nineteen, uh, and all that kind of yeah, stuff, which, crazy, which is absolute absolute rubbish. Because if you look at the American system, they go to college for three years, so they don't actually get into the professional ranks till mm. twenty one, twenty two. I know Tim Watson's one that's been pushing for this for a long time to be able to let him develop maybe up the draft age, and I think it's a great idea. I think if they're ready at eighteen, take them. But I think give them another two years to develop in the VFL, and we've seen not just the runners guys like Hibbert and Newman and those kind of guys, but people like, or Sam Lloyd's another one that's come from the VFL through runners. But you've got uh, Michael Barlow was one of the first. He, he's obviously had a good 200-game career. He's etched out. So lots of those VFL guys and go on to play very good AFL careers. With the culture you're talking about, totally. Horse racing is a good example. If we All our rich races are two- and three-year-old, but mm-hmm. it's funny that we're famous for the Melbourne Cup, the two-mile handicap. But we don't really breed distance no. distance horses. Counterintuitive. The richest race in the country, well, second richest Everest is the richest, thirteen mil. But seven million dollar Melbourne Cup for mature stayers that can run a long distance, and we don't produce or encourage people to produce no. those horses. It's completely topsy turvy. Which and, is yeah. And the footy stuff. It's it's funny you think about a bloke like Mason Cox. I know we, we're jumping all over the place here, but here's an American guy that didn't know what a footy was four years ago. But they took their time with him and worked on the basics, looking at the athlete, saying, here's a mature athlete. If we can teach him how to catch a footy and kick a footy, we might be able to turn him into something pretty special. And then you see what he did in a prelim final. Absolutely caught fire on Friday night. Now, this is the biggest stage of all, Shark. Like He's on a prelim final in front of 95,000 people. Collingwood, Richmond, just mortal enemies. The rivalry is immense. The noise was unbelievable. His parents from Texas have flown in behind the goals and he's literally done his finest work right in front of him. Yeah. Taken nine contested marks, Mick. Kicked three goals, but the nine contested marks, people don't take that in a career sometimes. Nah. And he's had nine on the one night. I know he's bloody six foot ten, but still, what an athlete to be able to develop. I saw him kick a drop punt only a couple of years ago. He could not drop the bloody thing. Nah. And now he's doing this on the biggest stage of all, and he's playing in a grand final. So I love the look on mum and dad's face too when they kept he kicked the goal and they cut back to the crowd wow. and everyone's chanting "USC." And the parents are filming it on their phones so and mouthing certain expletives, just totally it was rabbit in the headlights stuff. They they were just right in that moment, had no idea how this was happening. It was like a dream, and they would, they were trying to keep a lid on it, but they they got ninety five thousand people looking at them on the big screen, like Amazing. and then all of us at home, millions of people at home. Speaking of Collingwood, Nathan Buckley's one. Now, he's got an incredibly high footy IQ. He's a beautiful football brain. He was an absolute champion footballer, six-time, seven-time BNF. But he's knock, he's knockers have said, and and I'll probably am one of them in a way where he's man-managing his people skills, his, abil- his inability 
to be flexible with certain individuals and certain different personalities has definitely held him back. To Eddie Maguire's credit, he's had patience and patience and patience after six years without a final. Nathan, to his credit, has evolved, which we all need to evolve as humans over the over over our whole lives. And he's evolved to be he's opened himself up. He's love he's been a lover of his boys. He's opened himself up to his boys and his boys love him now. And you can see what happens when you start enjoying your footy. They've gone from thirteenth to now playing in a grand final. You can't spell succession without success. And I think you would have to say that that Malthouse Buckley succession plan has been a success now. I was at the Carbine Club Grand Final lunch on Tuesday and Eddie Maguire was there as a Carbine Club member and they asked him, you know, but away from all the, the excitement and everything else of being in the Grand Final, what was the single biggest change from this year that has seen the Pies been able to, you know, withstand all the injuries, withstand the, the changing dynamic of that team and make a Grand Final? And he said, we looked at Richmond and we studied Richmond and how they went about it last year. And obviously players are the friends across different clubs. So we got our players, you know, talk to some of the guys at Richmond, just find out. Well, not game plans and tactics, but what was the vibe like? What was the culture like? How did they feel? And the resounding response was they just enjoyed their footy. So Eddie said that's all they tried to achieve in the preseason and throughout the year was fun. Just have fun. And it's difficult, I think, when you're Collingwood because you've always got the eye of all of Melbourne on you and your, your 100,000 members or whatever it is that all sort of ride and on the roller coaster of your results week to week. You know, it's a serious game to a degree. But you've got to have fun. Otherwise, those little losses and those hiccups, they just build up, build up, build up, build up. And it becomes too much. You're being chased down the mountain by a, by a growing snowball. Yeah, and I think that's like if, we'll get off the footy in a minute. But if I think if you, as any coach or any athlete, can take out of that, we kind of wanted to bring that up because you look at the the best AFL coaches at the moment, and it's not it's not rocket science. Like everyone's got the tactics. Like that's not the footy IP. To be honest, they're all doing the same thing anyway. They're all trying to copy each other. But it's the ability, it's the half art, half science factor that we talk about in mm. coaching so often, and I've been so big on it. You look at Damien Hardwick, Luke Beveridge, Alistair Clarkson, the Scott brothers to an extent, they love their boys and their boys love them and they have a great time doing it. And if you're not enjoying what you're doing, you're doing the wrong you're doing the wrong thing. And you talk about those coaches you mentioned, the other thing they share in common is longevity. Yep. They've been allowed to have a chance and yeah. uh, and, and uh, Brad Scott in particular, North Melbourne as a North Melbourne member, we've had stability there mm. and we've been able to run out in two prelim finals where we probably weren't you know, equipped talent-wise and compete, but then go through a, a little dip and, and, a, and a reset and, and come back and have a good year this year. But the constant's the coach. Mm. It's totally and true. And it's, it's so important. I think... Um, That's why if I took over from you one day... Uh, in here, yep. I think there'd be chaos. There would be chaos. I'm not sure... There'd be could... some good tunes, but it, I don't think anyone would be getting very fit. No, you wouldn't be getting fit. And the tunes, even the tunes would be questionable. I would dare say we would go from 30 people a session to 10 in very, very quick time. I think 10's been generous, to very, be fair. Very quick time, Shark. You would you would ruin me. If I went away for a week and put you in charge, you would ruin me. Oh. I'd come back to an empty setup and a shitload of debt. Now, you ever seen the Snoop Dogg film clip, Gin and Juice? 
Oh, I have, I've heard the song very many times. I think, I'm pretty sure that's the one. It might be Gin and Juice or it might be... Uh, and I think it is Gin and Juice. And his parents go away for the weekend and he just turns it into this just pumping R&B, hip-hop party and there's girls See, with their... Sounds like good fun. Friends but there and all that sort of stuff. You know, That's what it would be like here, I think. From Snoop Dogg to the greatest athlete of our generation, probably... Both share something in common. Probably of any... Both love running. They both One from the cops. And Snoop Dogg runs one from the fun. police only. Talking about fun, Kipchoge, Elliot Kipchoge, ladies and gentlemen. Look, I don't think we're the first person to talk about this guy this week, but we need to spend at least three or four minutes on him. This is a man who last week at Berlin took a lazy 78 seconds off the world marathon record 201.39 he ran in a proper race conditions. Now, we all talk about his breaking two effort of May 2017, but this is last week, 201.39, absolutely smashed it. You have to go back 50 years to find a bigger leap in the record when they're, when they're Aussie, our own Aussie, Derek Clayton, who was an animal trainer, by the way. Derek. Yeah, Deza became the first man under 210. That was in 1967, so you've got to go back 50 years. Now, Kipchoge was a moral for the victory. Like We all knew he was going to win, but... To do it in such fashion, and he's been to Berlin a couple of times. The weather hasn't been to the liking, but I tell you what, last Sunday, 201.39, do you want me to go through the splits? A two-minute 52-kilometre average, so every single K ticked over at 252. A K in 2.52. 20.5-average K per hour. Could anyone here run 1K in 2.52? Yeah, we've got a few, but not many. Uh, there'll be a few of us that could keep it with 1,500, and that's it. I could keep it with Elliot for 1,500, and that, that's it. No more. No, first so 1.5K. And he has a 42. That's awesome. 70 second laps. So you've got to think about 70 seconds laps of the track. Okay. Yeah, over over good. 170 second laps back to back about rest. He's the greatest athlete of our generation. Forget about his physiological makeup because he has been a champion for a long time. A 5,000 metre gold medalist in 2003. It's his mental, it's his mental state and what we spoke about. Just having fun. He enjoys his running. He's a multi-millionaire, but he gets back to... to Lives camp. in a hut. No, pretty much. Lives in a hut in Kenya with his uh, fifteen brothers, pet rhino, and his don't. fifteen brothers. There's no need to get facetious about the greatest athlete of our generation. Mick. He's friends with the, you know, the. Do some of those groups still put the big plates in their mouths? You know those lip plates. Remember them? I always get worried when he talks about stuff he has no idea about. Like National Geographic. Listen, he goes back. He does the washing. He does the dishes. He does, does the washing. He does everything. He goes back and lives like a, a bloke who earns $2 a day, but he, he's a multi. Now, this is I'll what... i do the washing. Listen, he's kept his life as normal as possible, and he's just the most relaxed, beautiful man, and he's just he's just, he's just just stress-free. And if that's not an indication of what we all... Like, he's got a very minimalistic lifestyle. Yes. And he's just kept everything simple. There's no... Abs- and he's, his beautiful coach, Paddy Sang... He's been with him the whole time. It's just a beautiful story. I encourage listeners, if you're not already over him, which I'm sure they are, to Google and read everything you can about Ali Kipchoge and Paddy Sang because those two are two of the great men. And do you think you'll follow uh, the former world record holder into sports commentary? Uh, who, which world record? Dennis Cometo. Dennis, oh, you're, you're an idiot. Dennis Cometo, the poor bugger, he's, he's done nothing since 2014. There is an Australian commentator called So Dennis you're saying Cometti. he just bobbed up like a cork in the ocean. He, oh, <laughs> didn't I lead you into that one? <laughs> For those overseas listeners, Dennis Committee is a very popular Australian sport, sports broadcaster. Dennis Committo, 
Now you've got me. Dennis Committee. Dennis Committee. Oh, you've thrown me. <laughs> you've thrown me. Kometo did peak in 2014. He's had a bit of bad luck of injuries to the 202.57. Come on, Dennis. Listen. There's been a lot of talk about the sub two marathon. Alex Hutchinson is a guru. They've written many things. Dr. Michael Joyner wrote a beautiful. Joyner. Wrote an amazing piece in 1991 talking about the sub two marathon. There's so much good literature out there. I still don't think in a normal race setting that it will happen. I think it's still a long way off in a normal race situation. Mm-hmm. I think in the structured setting of the hat of breaking two, where they had the Tesla in front of him and the nine. Mm. Um, Good product the, placement. The, the arrowhead, yeah, correct. The arrowhead of paces every three case switching over. I think he can do it there. So he will go under two, but I don't think in a proper race legal setting he'll ever break two, which means if he can't do it, I don't reckon anyone can mm. in the next 15, 20 years. What about the uh, the women's? Who was the winner there? One of your favourite African names, Gladys, yeah. Gladys Chirono ran two eighteen. Mama Mama Chirono. Gladys ran really well because she's now the fourth fastest woman of all time. Kind Gladys, see again. Yes. Nineteen thirties Australia <laughs> meets two thousand and eighteen Africa. Mm. And she look, she's Gladys. Is her sister named Doris? She might. I'm confident she's got a couple of sisters. Is Dor- there a Mavis, Mavis Chirono? Betty. Mavis Sharona. There's a couple of Bettys as well. But I tell you, she is an athlete. She's Mabel Sharona? She's now the fourth fastest woman marathoner of all time, Mick. Of all time. Of all time. That's nothing to sneeze at. But unfortunately, in the hysteria with um, Elliot, that Gladys's time of 218.11 kind of got overlooked a bit. Gladys has become a shrinking violet of sorts. Boom, boom. Well, her time... <laughs> Her time got overlooked a bit. I, I tell you what, she's got a lot of good running ahead of her. But so much I can do with these names. I know. I'm trying to keep you away. So with the with Aliud though, I just want everyone that's listening to read to read something about Kipchoge. He could be listening. Re- hopefully one day we'll get him on. He's an incredible consumer of podcasts when he's washing the dishes, Aliud. And he's that's, quite, a, that's a known fact. He washes everything by hand. Facts. Um, yep, he's yep. got the old washboard. Well, what wouldn't you kill two birds with one stone? He has got the washboard, Mick. It's funny you said it's that. Out with his wooden bucket. Please read something, listeners, about Kipchoge. Please read something and take it in and he make. Really get sponsored by Dynamo or something. He like can that. make send you, him a top loader. He can help you. Just everything above about Kipchoge is his strength and his mental strength. So forget about physiology. Kipchoge is that mentally and psychologically strong. It is all about that. So if you can take something from Kipchoge, just no worries, no stress, and enjoy every day. Hate stains too. Should we get on to our guest, Mick? Yes. Without any further ado. Well, this is exciting. I've never uh, I've never heard an Olympian. I don't think has there been an Olympian in these uh, great walls here at at Runners HQ. Just KMAC. That's it. It's pretty special. We haven't got too many Olympians per se. We need him to put his hands in cement or something out the front. The wall? Yeah, just something like that. Hall of Fame? Yeah. And then we need to quickly get other famous people because otherwise it's going to look pretty ordinary with just one famous person. Lots of pro footballers, but they're not quite endurance Well, let's wait till they play 100 games. 100 games? Yeah, 100-game wall. We'll get on to Chris McCarthy. I'll give Elliot a ring while you talk to him. Listeners, I apologise for Mick Sharkey. Let's get on to K-Mac. Without any further ado, Chris McCarthy. G'day and welcome to Runners Radio. Today we're having a beer with Sydney Olympian, 2002 bronze medalist at the Manchester Games and four-time national champ all over the 800 metre distance. Welcome, Chris McCarthy. G'day, Rick. K-Mac, it's great to have a beer with you, mate. Cheers. For the listeners out there, we did 
lived together for two or three years, so we had many beers together, but it's been a long time between drinks, so it's great to have the great man back with me today. Now, K-Mac, it's a fair CV, but just quickly, where does life find you right now, and then we'll delve into the life that is Chris McCarthy. Uh, nowadays, live a pretty uh, ordinary life, so I work for Monash University in the sport department, um, running all sorts of sports programs and events there for the university. Um, don't do too much running because the calf got the old man calves nowadays, so uh, anything more than a 5k jog seems to find them that they don't recover. And play a bit of football on the weekends, the old man's footy. Uh, just rules for yeah. those distance outside. Yep, yep, Aussie rules football. So they've got an over thirty fives competition uh, that runs down here. So that's a that's a bit of fun and uh, allows me to do some of the things that I wasn't able to do back when I was running. So things like playing football, do a bit of snowboarding now, and doing all those things that um, you couldn't do when you were running. Yeah, you sacrificed a lot when you were at the pointy end as you were, mate. So we might we might be going backwards in chronological order just quickly, but the calves. And the ankles is and eventually what ended it all. Is that right? Uh, more the ankle injury. Um, never did a calf before the age of 30. And then uh, I reckon I was about 30 and one month or old going for a run. And We, we might have been together that time. It was. It was, uh, yeah, so it was just before we went to America on a trip. Right. Uh, it, 2010, I think that might have been. Late 09. Yeah, and uh, just going for an... Going for an easy easy run along the Seaford foreshore there for those that are in the uh, Carum Seaford area they might know there they might might know that area. Uh, Nineteen minutes into the run, I was fine. Two steps later, couldn't walk, and had a uh, had about a forty minute walk back to the car, <laughs> and that was the first time the calf went. And I haven't really strung more than about two or three months together since then. They just constantly keep on popping, but never did one before thirty. And uh, since 30, it's just this, this uh, chronic injury now. Don't let this age thing put listeners off. We've got many listeners that peak well into their mid to late 40s and early 50s. But K-Mac being such a speed-based athlete, especially in his younger days, and then you did have some debilitating injuries that I've got no doubt has contributed, the ankle and all those kind of issues in his early 20s. We'll get to that in a minute. School days for K-Mac, what do they involve, big fella? Oh, back in, uh, did a little, a little bit of little laughs back in primary school and uh, and through high school and so forth, and then uh, uh, a lot of just generally playing sport and outside running around and all of that. So I didn't do a lot of training when I was a kid. Uh, you just naturally sort of fit. And uh, for those older older listeners out there like yourself, Rick, you'll remember that you know you get home from school and there wasn't sort of playstations and all that. It was out the front kicking the footy, uh, playing cricket, doing all that sort of stuff. So it was just sort of naturally fit during school and um, did some athletics on the weekends and also did some boundary umpiring from about the age of 13. So that really kept my fitness up, earning a little bit of money, a little bit of pocket money during early high school. A lot of running in Boundary Empire. And so that kind of incidental exercise, which was so common back in our day, even if it wasn't in organised sport, that grounding a little athletics, which was there, even though you told me before you had no ability back then. How does a bloke go from that to year 11, year 12, starting to peak, and then two years later, lining up at the Olympic Games in Sydney? Uh, so I was pretty good as a, as a junior from about, you know, under sixes, under sevens, right through to probably about under twelves or under thirteen. So I won a won quite a few state titles and that type of thing over 
400, 800, 2K cross country, 3K cross country. Uh, but when I got to about 12 or 13, I didn't really grow and all the other kids grew. So I went from being sort of, you know, average height for my age to being uh, a bit of a runt of, the, of, of uh, I guess, for my age group. And so I went from being one of the best sort of probably in the country to not, not even being able to beat you know, kids at school around the oval sort of thing. So I just didn't have that growth growth spurt when everyone else did. So I gave away athletics for quite a few years there during my teenage years. And that's when I got into more of the boundary umpiring. So I was down at Southern Football League doing boundary umpiring. I got selected to go up to the AFL. So I did that for quite a few years. And that kept my fitness going probably in a time when I wasn't doing any uh, organised athletics. And it was through... It was through the um, umpiring that I got back into uh, athletics. A friend of mine who was um, who was an umpire, but also ran for a club called Glen Huntley. Uh, Very famous club, not just in Victoria, Australia, but um, you can reel off some of the names. Ron Clark, yeah. reel, reel them off. There's been a few. Yeah, Pat Scammell yeah, and um, uh, Debbie Flintoff King. So some of the greats worldwide names there. So continue on. Yep. Uh, so yeah, they, when I was about 18, sort of still doing my umpiring, uh, one of my friends up there, a guy called Steel Irish, uh, he encouraged me to come back down to athletics to run for Glen Huntley and wasn't something I was too interested in. Uh, I was happy umpiring and getting a bit of cash for that, but he eventually talked me into coming down and having a bit of a run and went down there and to my surprise that I improved a lot from back when I was sort of, you know, 14, 15. And from that stage, I took it back up again. But yeah, hadn't done a lot from in between the ages of about 14 and about 18. And it wasn't until I got to about 17, 18 that I started to grow. And that's probably what helped with my improvement. With that distance, especially now. Chris, this, this next few years is one of the more amazing stories. I, I still think in world athletics. 1997, 98, we're talking now, ladies and gentlemen. And then he's gone... On the sharpest trajectory up you'll ever like to see. So 1998, what was your 800 meter peak, uh, time for 98? And yeah. then how do we just go from there? Can you take the lessons for the progression in, in times? But don't get too far ahead of the Olympics just yet. So how do we go in that five-year period? Yeah, so I think I started running again fairly seriously in about year 12, so 1997. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I, my PB was 209 at the time. And... That's when Steel got me back down and running, and after a couple of races, I ran a 201, and that was the end of that season, so I only did a few races sort of in that season and ran a 201, and then my first race for the next season, a famous Glen Huntley guy called Trevor Vincent, I went along to watch the uh, the old State League, and was just there to watch Steel run, he was in the, in the steeplechase, but they were short one in the 800, and Trevor came up to me and said, oh, look, you're probably not going to qualify because qualifying was two minutes and I hadn't done any training over the winter except for the boundary umpiring. But he said, uh, but if you want to have a run, you're welcome to pull on the spikes. So I put the spikes on and I was up against some of the... Uh, we're up against Doncaster who had a really, really strong team and uh, just sort of got in there and hang on and I think I finished third in 156. So it was a sort of a five-second PB. Outrageous. And then the next race I ran a 153 and... Mm. Um, <laughs> Yeah, you get an idea of what we're dealing with here, listeners. Uh, an actual freak hadn't started his ridiculously famous work rate just yet, though. No, nah, so this that, is that, not that was, not really doing any, that was any training. Come. So he's run a one fifty three off, not much. 
So you know he's got that ability there at 18 or 19? Nah, that was probably, yeah, 18, just turned 18. And At this stage, surely now you're thinking, oh, I should be making a go of this. Um, surely. See, those, ty- those sort of times then sort of... Those times aren't competitive. Yeah. But you've done that with not much work. So what happens now in your brain? Does your brain say, well, what happens if I put a good year or two of work in? Uh, a little bit, yeah. Specific so work. Uh, it was it probably wasn't until I ran one fifty, which is a couple of races after that. So it was the university games. So that season, I finished a PB with one fifty three. Went and did my boundary umpiring again, and my first race of the next season, I ran one fifty in the Australian Uni Games, and I beat uh, some pretty good athletes there that were national level in that. And that's probably when I started to realise that. Um, when I was on the ground throwing up because I hadn't been doing any specific training and I was very, very sick for a long time after the race, probably an hour <laughs> before I could sort of stand up. Very and, famous for this, he vomits often. And uh, as it, probably at that point that I realised that if I started training, then I could then I could probably start to bring those times down because I hadn't done a lot up to running 150. Um, I'd done a couple of sessions here and there sort of um, leading into that into that meet but that was it and all the rest of my training was just through boundary umpiring so it's it's probably about that point that i decided now time to start doing some specific training for the 800 to my knowledge you were only coached by your old man and peter fortune is there anyone else in there that we should mention there um no that's pretty much that's pretty much it where's the order go from here is it your dad first or is it peter it was dad dad first seb co took me for one session once jesus uh, well how's the name (laughs) drop He's dropping the greatest of all time in here. I wasn't aware of that either, by the way. Um, so, yeah, so he, uh, I, would, I was lucky enough to be, when I was living over in London, uh, um, and Lewis was being coached by Seb at the time and uh, went and joined in a session and he took me to his steps, which he used to do when he was a, a young young athlete. And he, so that was a bit of an honour. Seb loves you. He's followed your career. He did from afar, didn't he? He, he always was a good supporter of yours. Uh, yeah, well, back in those days, uh, Seb was actually the commentator for Channel 7. So yeah, um, I've seen the footage. He wraps you up very, very nicely. Yeah, yeah. So so, so Dad was my coach uh, through till 2002, and then Peter Fortune took over uh, after that. Kev? Yep, Kev. So, so Kev's done a tremendous job. So Kev's got you to the Olympics and to the bronze. Yep. yep That's fantastic. So let's tell me about the few months leading up to Sydney, qualified at the National Champs. Did you? Yes. Uh, you ran the first qualifier in Canberra. Um, so that was a, a bit of a fairly big PB. I think my PB was about 147.6 and ran a, managed to run a 145, um, 145.7 in Canberra, which was the A qualifying. And then, uh, then we had the national championships. Uh, but the actual Olympic trials were a little bit later in the year. Um, so you already knew you were going to Sydney? Uh, no, no. So th- that year was a bit different because normally you have your national championships in sort of, which we did in February, oh, yeah. and they select the team after that. But being an Olympic year in Australia, they decided to have a selection trials in August just before the Olympics. So that year was a little bit different to the, to the standard uh, Athletics Australia program. So was that your PB year? Was that 2000 when you ran? Yeah, that? it was 2000, so, yeah. And you ran that six months out from the Olympics? From, from the Olympics. And that time still, it was 145.57, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Now, at the time, Chris, this isn't that long ago, 2000, the top five or six ever by an Australian? Yeah, I think it was about six, six or seven, somewhere around there. So you're not yet 21, and you've ran the sixth fastest time ever by an Aussie around the half mile, 800 metres. Surely you got a little bit of head wobbling. You're starting to strut around a bit, young twenty-year-old fella. Yeah, yeah, it's it's strange. Back in those days, because I was improving so quickly, it was more 
I was so every race I was running PB so I started to think oh you know um looking forward to the next race yeah. and just improving that PB which is understandable yeah every, and I thought it was you know you think that trajectory is going to keep on yeah. happening when you're just taking big chunks off every time you run so I think I was just more focused on that at that which stage is, which is a good, good place to be and it probably explains why you ran so well yeah for the next two or three seasons um so okay so coming into Sydney you are you, you've been you had a lot of media around that time as well um I've seen it the media was loving you you were coming into the games you were a real I guess Victorian, Victorian superstar at the time. Everyone knew who you were. That must have been an experience. There were so many elite athletes around 2000 on the track as well. I know Michael Johnson, Haley Gabriel, Celeste, some of these type of names. Mm. Take me through the two weeks. You ran okay there. You were happy if you run and we move on. But obviously, tell me about the, the heats and then the athletes surrounding you and just your experience in the village in yeah. its entirety. Yeah, well, leading into the uh, Olympics, I actually tore my hammy three times in the six weeks leading into the Olympics. And so uh, my focus at the Olympics sort of changed from, you know, wanting to make the semifinals and hopefully make a final to uh, just being able to get out there on the track. So um, going into that Olympics was a little bit strange because I'd never had an injury before that. And that was my first sort of serious injury. And it sort of happened sort of that six, eight weeks before the Olympics. Um, yeah, made it, made it quite difficult. Uh, but it was an amazing experience. And uh, especially that opening ceremony, it doesn't quite hit you until you walk out in the stadium. And, you know, we had 110,000 fans there, all Australians. So for myself, who 18 months before was someone with a PB of 201 in the 800, it was pretty surreal to go from, you know, watching all these guys on TV to all of a sudden you're going to be racing them and seeing the likes of Lance Armstrong in the village and, and, and Gebra Celeste. forgot about you. And, uh, yeah, this is back in before uh, before all the controversies. Yeah. But, yeah, you're seeing all these people you'd only ever seen on TV before. Um, so that was quite amazing. This is why his story's so great, and not just because of the mate and I've, um, I've known him for a long time. So think about that, listeners. 12 months prior... A PB of 20... About 18 months prior, I think my PB was about 201. And so, now he's running 145.57 in Olympic Village in his home country in front of 110,000 people. So I honestly believe there's not many stories like this one. Um, it's obviously continues on for a few more years. This is coming towards your peak. Just give the listeners an idea of an average week coming into competitive season. So not base building phase or anything, just an average week, I guess, at your maximal type training load. So not tapering, not building, just your maximal type load in season or in com coming up to competitive phase. Yeah, well, it was probably quite a lot different to most 800 metre runners because I'd come from a background of not doing a lot of training and... Dad was my coach. He was uh, he's big into his horse racing, so he sort of trained me like a horse, and that would be you know minimal work, but everything sort of at race speed and and really quick. Uh, so uh, everyone was sort of amazed. Uh, yeah, because we're only doing about you know thirty to forty kilometres per week, so a lot of people didn't believe that and didn't believe that was true. Uh, but it was all very very specific training. Uh, my dad was big into the who was my coach. At the time, he was big into his horse racing, so he sort of trained me a bit like the horses are trained, where it was uh, the work that we did was very fast at race pace and specific. Uh, so our normal sort of session, we might do, um, you know, a fast warm up. So rather than just doing a warm up, slow warm up jog, I might do my sort of four k warm up jog um, at you know three three fifteen three twenty kilometer play pace. Uh, and then go into 
uh, strides and I'd do them uh, 600 metre strides, getting as fast as I possibly could for the, the last couple. So sort of running under 11 seconds for the last couple of 100 metre strides. And then we'd go into the, the actual lactic session. So uh, the idea there was that in a training session, most of the training sessions will ticking off all the sort of bases for an 800 metre runner. And that probably is why I didn't do anywhere near the kilometres of what a normal sort of 800 metre runner would do. No, you certainly, like, I, I've followed you for a long time. You've certainly coming at it from a different angle. I think for many reasons, Kev did that. Obviously, your base, you had, you didn't have a traditional distance running base, especially coming from high school. Some of those kids have been running a long time. But if you look at someone like many of the Europeans, obviously Peter Snell and those kind of gurus from the, the 60s covering 160k a week, lots of your contemporaries, no doubt, would have been covered over 100k a week as uh, over the um, the half mile. So you, you're definitely coming out for a different angle. You were famous for your lactic tolerance work and how much you could tolerate. Tell me though, surely you weren't doing that every day so what what was was every second day on the track every every third day uh probably around about four to uh four five sessions a week would have been still lactic type of work wouldn't have all necessarily been on the track we did hill sessions and that type of thing um but i'd say a, a normal week would have probably had uh four to five of those sessions so maybe something like um nine nine sessions in a fortnight would have been sort of hard hard work um track hills uh whatever it happened to be there wasn't too much i guess easy easy runs uh if i was doing a shorter uh, or or a long run my long runs were probably more that 30 to 40 minutes but i try and make them fast um rather than sort of going out and doing yeah 15 kilometer to 20 kilometer at four and a half to five minute pace i didn't do a lot of that uh, or any of that work at that particular time no, I think as I was, I met you, you were starting, but yeah, you're certainly not at your peak by the sounds of it. So the natural speed was there. I know you've said before your strength was being able to hold a sustained speed for that minute and a half to minute 45, which is so tough to do. Your speed, you said sub 11 for strides and that, that that's quite excellent, but you still don't think it's as good as the, obviously as the Rhodesia types now, but... It would still had you. It would have still had your top end kick at the top in the top percentage of that hundred guys or not? Um, yeah, probably. There's a, there's some guys that were very 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 quick over the um, four hundred meters as well. Um, so it's a really strange one because yeah, there are some people who have really really good top end speed, uh, and then you have got others that haven't got quite got the top end speed. But it's more about that cruising speed and what speed you can hold cruising. So I think my four hundred speed was better than probably the average 800 meter runner, but it was still nowhere near the top guys as yeah, well. in Europe. And so you're thinking back to the 800 in 2000, if you had to nominate the 400 or the 1500 back then, if just to be competitive in, what would you have chosen? Um, in the short term, it would have been the 400. Yeah. Uh, I, I probably was, I ran the uh, 4x4 relay at the 2002 Commonwealth Games. Yeah. So I did have um, reasonable speed and uh, especially for a relay because I didn't have to come out of blocks so I think I got a uh, split under 46 seconds for some 400s uh, on yeah. a few occasions in relays because I didn't have to worry about coming out of the blocks uh, so in the short term it probably would have been the 400 but if I'd been able to develop my base then I probably yeah. would have been better suited to the 1500 I think so too just from training with you and you be, at the time you don't see too many milers running 30k a week 
<laughs> at, the, at the elite level. So that, that's what uh, I knew that the listeners would like, the polarisation of that kind of stuff. When you've got a, a bloke as good as Chris running 145.5 and literally covering 30 to 40k a week, yes, all at top end. Yes, he knows how to hurt. Yes, he's extremely fast. But he's, he's lining up with seven other blokes that are covering at least 60 to 70k in the morning and definitely more experienced. Often these guys come from obviously backgrounds in, in they've got massive base 70 to 100 120k a week from from what the age of yeah some of them 16 17 the africans and then and then obviously the college system in the states around that 2000 time was there any you're obviously already professional was there any talk of any ncaa stuff college stuff uh, I did get some offers from a few you're universities in America, and uh, this was the year before the Sydney Olympics, and uh, sort of late '98, '99. I was getting getting a few offers from a few of the big universities. What was the biggest? Over there. Uh, Oregon, I think uh, they got in contact oh, with me. Actually, uh, I didn't know that. Um, so yeah, they um, they got in contact me with me. It's uh, always funny when the American universities call you up at three or four in the morning and <laughs> they've got no concept that the rest of the world are on a different time no, no. Uh, to them. And like, yeah, do you want to come over and study in the US? Oh, it's four in the morning, mate. You know? Were they taken aback when you said no? They, they wouldn't have been. Oh, they're Oregon. offering. They offer all sorts. What do you want to do? Do you want to be a doctor? We can get you into medicine. And I'm You're not, joking <laughs> me. And I'm, like, I'm not that smart, mate. Uh, he goes, doesn't matter. We get your tutors. We get you through. And I go, oh, this has got malpractice written all over yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and it might have been something that I considered, but the fact that uh, I went and had a chat to some people in at the Victorian Institute of Sport and they said, you know, with the Sydney Olympics coming up, it probably wouldn't be the best time to go. And so I didn't didn't go at that particular time in late 98 or 99 because the Sydney Olympics were, you know, uh, whilst it was still a fair way off, um, you know, it was still something that was, I thought, might be attained or achieve, yeah. achievable. Yeah, and you knew you could, yeah, you had the ability that... The college system is one of those things. Like lots of people have great experience, and they and they certainly like Oregon's probably the mecca, isn't it, for distance running? But yeah, the, look the VIS, and we did you have much to do with the AIS as well? Because we've got some of the best sports scientists in the world here. Uh, we went up for do, to do some testing at the AIS, but uh, we had uh, sort of training camps and so forth, and we had one there at the AIS, but. Uh, no, I was, I was pretty much just VIS based, and the main, the main reason is you obviously have to go and live in Canberra to be in the AIS. Yeah. Whereas um, being in the v Victorian Institute of Sport, you could you know live live where you're at home and um, you know keep everything else the same. Um, university training locations, all the rest of it. So that made things a little bit easier for me to stay in Victoria rather than moving to Canberra. Last one on the physiology of it all. Dick Telford or any of those blokes look after you. From a, like who was looking at was it just was it just Kev and then Pete looking after your your physiology stuff? Did you have anyone else looking out for them from the VIS and part, just just the old testing session? Was that about it? No, we did just did the testing sessions and so forth. We obviously got a lot of advice along the way. There's always um, when you sort of get to that level, there's yeah. a, there's a lot of people wanting to give give advice, and so you had people like Chris Wardlaw, who was the Australian coach at the time, and um, uh, and those types all, all wanting to give. Uh, have some input into what I should be doing and so forth. So we did have other people to bounce ideas off, and they certainly came from the back, the background of I should be doing more kilometres. So yeah. they were always, you know, what, of what? that opinion to try and mm -hmm. get that base up uh, and, and do more kilometres. Uh, so we did have um, quite a few different people all suggest making suggestions. Some were saying 
some were saying to go the other way and keep on doing what you're doing because it's working and others were saying oh imagine what you could do if you could you know yeah. build that base as well so uh, Bruce Scriven was another one that we used to you know touch base with quite regularly so if, yeah because I think when you get to because you are literally the best at this time the best in the nation there's no one better in the country than you in this era um, of one of the hardest events in the world so you, the listeners just to try to take you back to that page you're talking to the best runner in the country over this distance just quickly on the former Seb Co that we mentioned earlier he would have been quite happy with the way you go he was pretty he was a pretty big advocate of low mileage himself and high intensity um, he almost changed the game and so then he had then obviously gone back the other way now but how was he was he he looked over your training obviously for a week or two and he was pretty happy with where you were going uh, yeah, so I was lucky enough in, uh, I think it was about 2001 or 2002 when he was coaching Tams and Lewis. So I got to go and do a, a couple of sessions with Seb uh, in London and he took me to some of the sessions he'd done when he was running. He had this uh, session which was a hill that he'd run up and then it finished with steps. And so um, it was doing reps up that and he was telling me the times that he used to do. And so for me, that was a... Uh, uh, pretty a, pretty big moment because he was the sort of the guy I idolised when I was a kid growing up. I had the Sebastian Co posters up on my wall. He was probably uh, my Michael Jordan. Uh, mm. For those that are into basketball, for someone like myself who was into running, uh, Seb Co was, was the Michael Jordan. So to getting to do training sessions with him was fantastic. Um, and yeah, just to, to meet you pretty much your idol. He really was. And he is, he is the Michael Jordan of track and field. There's no doubt about that. And, and having... Um, what you were doing at the time does open up these doors or you do get to meet people like that so certainly look you shouldn't have felt out of place because you were dominated on the world stage so post olympics the next couple of years was pretty massive for you you continued to be consistent i think you won a couple of more national titles and then in manchester for australian viewers especially who remember the call it was a pretty good call from bruce McAvaney our premier commentator over here in Australia, he called you home and the famous bronze medal race has to be right up there in your list of achievements. Can you talk us through the, the two years from Sydney to Manchester and then finishes off with the big race on, uh, on that famous night? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, just going into the Sydney Olympics, uh, about um, uh, two months out from the Sydney Olympics, I actually tore my hamstring and it was the uh, first time I'd ever injured my hamstring and or had really a severe injury and I probably didn't rehab it the right way I came back a bit too quickly and tried to get do fast work too quickly after injuring it and redid it again and I ended up doing the hamstring about three times in the six weeks leading into the Sydney Olympics uh, so my training was heavily compromised for the sort of the last two to three months and my objective change for that race from you know wanting to make the semi-final and hoping to make the, the final to just making sure I made it out on the track and was able to, to run it all. Um, so that sort of finished off my Sydney 2000 campaign. And then from Sydney around to just before the Commonwealth Games, the next two years, I didn't really have any injuries again. But leading into the Commonwealth Games, uh, probably about three months out again, I tore my hamstring again. And so uh, it was one of those things that, you know, you don't have anything go wrong for two years. And then um, going into the next major, had the hamstring go twice more leading into it. So uh, I'm not sure what happened there. but mm. uh, And this was at the stage then that um, my, my dad decided to, to that I might be best being coached by Peter Fortune, who also coached um, Kathy Freeman and Lauren Hewitt and Tamsin Lewis. 
um, because he thought that maybe there was something that we were doing wrong as what contributed to these these hamstring injuries. Uh, but in the time in between the Sydney Olympics and the um, and the Commonwealth Games, I went over to Europe, ran in uh, the Grand Prix meets over there, went to the World University Games and uh, got to have a few of those different experiences and racing overseas, which I hadn't done prior to the Sydney Olympics. O1 World Champs? Uh, no, didn't get selected, uh, despite having eight qualifiers Cont and winning nationals. Yeah, there was a few you, few few, uh, mm. few newspaper articles written about that since I had the qualifier and won nationals. But uh, I don't understand what I didn't, <laughs> I, I didn't know that. I know, I know you went to O3, but we'll talk about that later. Yeah. The, the Diamond League or the Golden League at the time. Um, I talked the listeners through. Just be, we're not going to have too many guests on this show that have been to the Diamond League regularly and just. It's the premier event in the world for athletics, and you are on the pointy end. Tell me about walking through Europe. Like, is it is it is it as big as like a? How big is it when you're walking around there as an athlete? Uh, Europe's completely different, I guess, to Australia in that uh, athletes are a bit better, bit, bit better known over there, and it is a, um, I guess, a more popular sport than it is in Australia. Uh, Back in those days, it was actually called the the Golden League before it changed to the Diamond League, and and the being able to run in some some of those famous stadiums. So running at the Oslo uh, Bislett Games um, was you know something that you'd have only ever sort of seen on TV, and where there's been more world records. I'm not sure if that's that's still true, but that was the venue where the most world records had ever been set was there. Um, running running in Zurich at, at these sort of famous stadiums where they have all the cowbells out and it sells out almost a year in advance and you've got cowbells going the entire time you're racing. Uh, just getting to run in these types of venues was was awesome for for me in my, you know, sort of first trips overseas. You would have dominated the nightlife as well. Off the field, K-Mac, you would have been doing some of your finest work around that era. Uh, look, it was a different time back then, and you could you could sometimes go out and have a beer after a race, and uh, I don't think the athletes quite do that these days. But it was sort of uh, like like with footy, you you would have a race, and if you did well, you'd go out and have a couple of beers to relax afterwards, and then you'd focus on your next one. That's but that's the way it should be. You can enjoy um, yourself. But nowadays, uh, I'm not sure that <laughs> that happens well, quite hope, as often. I hope they still do. But yeah, so that that's pretty cool. So you you know that you've been in the elite end for two or three years, and consistency has been good, apart from the the injuries pre-tournament, pre-Olympics, and now pre-com games. Confidence leading into the Manchester games as far as that those heats and that, how are you feeling? Uh, the good thing was that uh, unlike the Sydney Olympics where I didn't really get to do much racing leading into it because of the injuries and there wasn't as many races on because the Olympics were in Australia, so there wasn't the same uh, Grand Prix circuit like in Europe. Uh, luckily, with um, going into Manchester, uh, we went up to Darwin for a pre-departure camp up there and um, the head coach, um, a guy called Keith Connor, who was the head coach of Australia at the time, said that I needed to run sub 147.5 before I'd be allowed to leave the country and go over to Europe. Uh, and he said that had to be electric, couldn't be hand-timed. And I think the, the first, so I ran a 800 metre race just up there by myself and ran a 147.53, I think, or something along those lines, missed out by 300s. And Keith came over and said, well, that's not, under 147.5, so you're not you're not going. So a couple of days later, I um, pulled on the spikes again and had a, did another 800 meter time trial and just got under on the second time here in uh, 147.3 or something like that. And then I was able to go over and managed to do a few races in Europe beforehand, including the Rome um, Golden League. Um, so I ran in the 
Rome Golden League and was only about 0.6 of a second, 0.6 of a second off the um, off the winner uh, in that in that Diamond League. So I knew then going to the Manchester Games that I was in better shape than what I was going into the Olympics because the injuries had happened far enough out yeah. that allowed me to have those extra races. Good for the confidence. As as much as that sounds harsh, those two individual time trials. Good for the confidence to have that in the bank and then the Rome race. You ran pretty well at Manchester in the heats. How did you feel leading to the heats and the semis and that? Uh, the heats was, um, at the Commonwealth Games, was uh, one of those ones that I thought, oh, I should definitely make this through. Mm. And, um, you know, there was going into the into the semi-finals, um, it wasn't that hard a progression from the heats to the semi-finals, but from the semi-finals to the final was that difficult progression. I think we had about five athletes um, that ran the Sydney Olympic final. Um, so it was pretty strong with your Kenyans, your Botswanians, your South Africans, Ugandans, etc. cetera. Um, some events in the uh, Commonwealth Games aren't, aren't as strong, but unfortunately, for <laughs> if you're an 800 meter runner, when you got, uh, you've got all these African countries that are part of the Commonwealth. The 800 is one of those ones that's quite strong. And uh, in the semi-final, I didn't run a great race tactically. I let myself get pushed around by these Africans who are, you know, five foot five and weigh about 50 kilos, and I'm, I'm six foot six foot two, six foot three, and weigh 82 kilos. And I was letting them push me push me around and um, didn't hold my position well. And I guess it was one of those things that yeah, when you're in a race and you see these guys who are 142, 143 runners, <clears throat> sorry, um, you see them and you think, oh, they're 142, I better let them go in front of me. Oh, they're, uh, they came second at the Sydney Olympics, I better let them go in front of me and so forth. Um, so I wasn't very positive and managed to hang on and get third and um, go into the final, but it wasn't through a great tactical run or being uh, confident and proactive in the race. Just that, just like the eight hundred and the fifteen for the tactics are, is something else you got to think about as well. I think um, you're silly if you don't, and you you got all these other physiological factors, psychological factors. You heard K Mac there. Do you remember how young he was at the time though? Like you were still so young at the time, um, so you could see that the mind was already playing against him in that race. And as if you wouldn't, like you you're in this race. You're just a young fella from from Frankston in Melbourne, and you're racing against 142 guys. You're racing against Olympic silver medalists, and it's um, it would easy to be for a fleeting moment get negative on yourself or doubt yourself. So clearly, you you got through on ability and toughness, and then flipped the mind over and said, "No, I need to have a better tactical race and not let not be pushed around in the final." Yeah, so my dad called up from Australia and he'd watched the race obviously um, through Channel Seven, and he he said, Look, "You got to be, you got to throw your weight around a bit more, be a bit more proactive, get yourself up there. You know, if you um, if you fail, you sort of fail, but you've got to get yourself up there and give yourself every possible chance." And um, so I thought about that, and going into the final, I was sort of determined to make sure I positioned myself a lot better. Uh, listened to a bit of Eye of the Tiger before the race to, to, you know, to pump myself up. <laughs> and, uh, Rocky three. Yep, yep. And then uh, went into it, and there was a moment in the after about 300 meters where I did sort of get shuffled back, but then managed to push a couple of guys out of the way and get myself back up there. But you are right; the 800 is one of those events, being the shortest of the unlaned track events that you've got. Eight, eight guys, no one normally wants to lead. No one wants to be trapped in the, on the fence. 
So you've got eight people all wanting to run in second or third, one out, one out, one, one, out, one out, one back. And so it doesn't always go. And that's why the pushing and the shoving and it's, all that tactics come into it. As if you don't have to think about enough being, like, it's the most painful event by far. And you've got all these other factors at play with tactics, which makes like the Olympic, Olympic and world champs and com games races just always the best viewing for mine. Um, with, with the tactics, so you're coming into the final lap, where are you positioned and how are you finding yourself in the running and just tactically, but just physically in the running, how are you finding yourself with the bell lap of, yeah, of the final? Um, we didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't a fast race. So we went through in about 53, 53 seconds, I think it was. And then the pace didn't really pick up like it normally would from a slow, slow lap until the last 200. Um, so going down the back, I think I was in about second, uh, or just behind the two leaders, sort of that third, second, third, fourth place. Uh, at that point, I made a little bit of an error where I let a guy called uh, Globe Dube from Botswana get up on my inside. I should have probably held him out um, because that meant that he took my run and then I had to wait for a gap to open up and then go wide in the last home straight. So. Straight after the race, I was quite happy with my performance, but you know, half an hour later, you start to analyse. You think, geez, if I'd, you know, done that a little bit different, differently, I might have been able to get the silver medal because I would have been able to cut a bit of ground and uh, sit right in behind the eventual winner, right to the line. So, yeah, yeah. It's the inner critic in you, but I don't think, mate, any a medal of any colour at any major championship is unbelievable, especially like you mentioned, um, taking nothing away from like the Aussie swimmers and other Com Games events. Uh, on the track with the middle distance events, it is stacked. So to medal at any Com Games is unbelievable. Took another 16 years for Lukey Matthews to do it this year, uh, which is a great effort from him and he's a superb athlete. So it just shows you the quality that we're dealing with here. So post that, I know it's pretty hard to talk in retrospect because you're thinking about the future as a young athlete. Did you, would you, could you enjoy it? Did you have time to suck it in and say, look, I'm, I'm this a little bit of fruits of my labour here that I can enjoy? Or was it just onwards and upwards to 03? Was it Paris World Champs? Uh, yeah, no, so to, at the end of that uh, season, so it was good um, good to have, a, I guess, an easier week of training, but we still got the Grand Prix circuit after the Commonwealth Games. So I had, I think, about three or four more races in Europe after after the Com Games. Uh, which finished in with the World Cup, which was in Spain, in Madrid, Spain. Uh, unfortunately, I got I got tripped in that race and fell, so um, didn't didn't get to finish off the season the way I would have liked. Uh, but the tough thing with a, being an Australian is, you know, that that race was at the end of September, and then you've got the season again starting, um, the Australian season starting in November, December. So, and you've got to get ready for nationals, which are normally around about, well, used to be around about February. So it is hard to have have a long break. Um, the Kenyans, uh, they're renowned for taking an entire month off, pretty much off running uh, after the season. And then they do an 11 month build up to the majors for the next year. So they start their winter, I guess, training and go through all of that. But we in Australia do struggle to be able to do that because you come off a European season and then the Australian season starting again and then you've got the American season and back into the European season. No, you can't you can't miss the nationals either for selection and all that kind of thing. So it's often been, they've tried to, or they've spoken about trying to change the way they're doing it, but they start, I'm not sure if it's going to be feasible. Well, the issue is, is the, the weather. You know, mm. you need good weather to run fast times in track and field and warm weather. And, you know, 
with the season not quite lining up, if you push the season back, then you know places like Melbourne and yeah. and uh, Tasmania, etc., um, the conditions just aren't conducive then to running fast and running and running good uh, sprints and middle distances. Same with your field events, they and the power events. They they want you know warm conditions, still yeah. conditions generally. And if you push the season back, it doesn't doesn't really work. So it's it's a it's a tough one with probably no real answer. I don't think there is. No, with that era of a three oh four coming up to you've done a lot already. Did your mental mindset pre race ever change, or did you have a pretty like pretty standard routine moving into races just the hour or two before the race? Can you give us an idea on on mentally the way you used to prepare? If any, or just we just that young, you used, used to do it. Um, oh, no, there, there was a bit of a bit of a preparation, but you know, it's just a matter of you know our warm ups would generally start about, or my warm ups would start about an hour to an hour and fifteen minutes before call room. So at a lot of the big races, you've got these call rooms. Um, the call room times can uh, differ dramatically so some races it might be 15 minutes uh something like the sydney olympics i think it was about 50 minutes mm. so you had to be in the call room which is basically where they get you organized in india india heats and you just sit there and wait um 50 minutes before the race so then you've got to work out your warm-ups back from there but also making sure that you don't over warm up because when you're going to be sitting there for 50 minutes you're constantly stretching and doing all that sort of thing so you don't want to waste too much energy in the warm-up when you know you're going to be sitting inside this room uh, for another 50 minutes. So uh, for myself, it was, you know, you get to the track nice and early um, just to make sure that you're ready, have a bit of a lie down. Um, as anyone that's done a few races probably knows, you start to feel really tired and lethargic. Um, you know, a couple of hours before a race, you're wanting to fall asleep all the time. You're wanting to go to the toilet all the time. So your body just getting prepared for racing. You're wanting to sleep because your body's wanting to save energy. Um, you go under the toilet because your body wants to get rid of any excess weight. So, um, and then about an hour before you just start that warm up with the easy jog, strides, stretches, and, and that type of thing. Um, back in my day, iPods and all that sort of wasn't a wasn't no. a thing as much. So, uh, if you wanted to listen to some music, you had to do it on a discman, <laughs> which means you couldn't sort of run with it and that type not, of thing. Not very uh, mobile, the old discman. No, no. Jogging. So um, today, I think um, with the with modern technology, the athletes do 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 a lot more with music and helping them relax or pump up or whatever they want to do. If your pain tolerance is famous. The ability to vomit after races and training sessions were you always you knew you had to go to war you knew you had to tolerate that did you get yourself in any kind of zone or you just said this is what i got to do uh it does it did get harder the more races you do in the season so the first few races of a season you know it's easier to push yourself to that limit but when you're doing it day after day after day so in a uh, major major championship for example where in the Commonwealth Games I had four races in four days it does get hard to keep on you know I guess getting yourself into that mindset of having to push yourself to the point where you know you're going to be sick for a good hour after the race um, I used to get yeah severe migraines uh, throw up for a sometimes between a half an hour and an hour after the race uh, constantly just um, and not being able to really move because the lactic acid just was just built up in my body and I could not could not move for about half an hour to an hour after the race. That's probably a little bit to do with my 
lack of, um, I guess, base training as well, because I'd come from more of that speed background. I didn't have as much um, base training in there, which would help um, get rid of that lactic acid. Yeah, but incredible paces held as well. Like you, your, your natural speed, not natural, you worked a bit on the speed, I know, but the ability to hold those paces, I think anyone that was anything would hurt doing a one, like 145, 146. Coming up to... The Athens games, it all start to unravel, the body. Tell us about Athens, the 04. It should have been your second Olympics and you should have been coming in what, to what most runners would say, the peak of their powers, but the body said no. Yeah, it was probably, uh, I was probably the fittest I'd ever been. Uh, I got selected for Athens and had really started to put a good, good month or so of training together. And um, all of a sudden I was running along uh, on a golf course and felt fine 20 minutes into it and then the next step I uh, got this really severe pain in my ankle and had to stop I uh, couldn't run one more step and went from not, not being able to feel it at all to um, pretty much not being able to run at all within a couple of steps so walked home and got scans and all the rest of it and I had quite a lot of bone stress in the ankle joint but they um, the doctors and all that couldn't quite work out what was going on in there um, so, because it was in the subtalar joint, and that's a very, very difficult joint, especially 15 years ago now, um, to be able to diagnose what's going on in that particular joint. So, had some rest and um, was trying to do things like water running and riding and all that to keep my fit up, uh, keep my fitness up, and unload the joint. Uh, was getting injections into the joint and all these types of things just to try and get it to settle down. So, this was probably for the two two months to three months before the Athens Olympics. Um, when it wasn't really settling down, we tried decided to try and train through it a bit. So strapping up the ankle and then doing sand dune sprints because it didn't seem to hurt as much sprinting uphill. Uh, the steeper the hill, the less the ankle joint hurt. So um, pretty much all my sessions were just sprinting up sand dunes to try and get that fitness up and make the start line for Athens. Um, going down to the Frankston Beach and doing water running in June, July, out in the ocean, just and doing um, doing quite a lot of, I guess, circuit training with weights and, and so forth with a guy called Andrew Schneider. He was uh, helping me out, trying to get my fitness up as much as possible without actually doing your specific 800 metre track work and runs and, and all of that sort of stuff. Frustrating because you, uh, your third major championships that you you obviously were interrupted in but it's hard because the ankle was one of those things with with the structural part of it you, you just don't know it was probably always going to happen you, you don't know what what happened there so with with Athens you didn't you obviously didn't run it just it just was too much uh, I pulled out uh, I think a couple of days before the uh, before the opening ceremony um, I was because I'd been to Sydney Olympics, I thought I didn't want to go there uh, to Athens and perform badly. I think no. if I hadn't been to an Olympics, I probably would have pushed on and gone and run. And, you know, if I didn't run up to my best, then, you know, so be it. Mm -hmm. Whereas I was in the mindset, if I'm not going to be at my, you know, at my best and competitive, I didn't want to go there and run a 149 sort of thing and be tailed out the back in the heat. So my mindset was at that stage that I was sort of, I was 24 and I'll get, um, I'll get surgery straight away uh, on the ankle and start the recovery because, you know, I'd still be a few years off reaching my absolute peak. Usually your middle distance runners at sort of 26 to 30 is the, you know, the absolute um, window of when you should reach your peak. So I thought, well, I don't want to stuff all that up. 
Uh, but had I known that I'd probably never run properly again, I probably would have gone to Athens and gone to the start line and just done what yeah, I could. But, two-time you know. Olympian, but look, it's just the way. You are technically, you're you selected. So you're a two-time Olympian in, in lots of our eyes. The rehab post-surgery didn't go to plan. Yeah, well, they, they couldn't work out what was re- really wrong with the with the ankle. So I um, had lots of different doctors look at it and they all disagreed with what the problem was. But the um, one thing that was that stood out was just the bones in the subtalar joint would just get really, really hot. So I was getting those bone scans. So for anyone that's had a bone scan before and you get the uh, black sort of there when the... Um, that you, that you can see where the bone's stressed. My entire entire ankle joint was just black. And uh, coming back, I could always get up to about 40, sort of, you know, 40 Ks a week of easy running. But as soon as I started to go beyond that, either doing more kilometers or, or um, uh, fast work on the track where you're putting more stress on it, it would straight away start to get sore again. So, um, I yeah. Do, I do remember this time quite well, but you, your tempo running was okay, wasn't it? It was as soon as you got anything under about 3.20 pace. Is that right back then? Um, just any any kind of quick stuff, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, but it was also volume as well. So leading into the Athens Olympics from, I guess, from the Commonwealth Games in 2002 to the Olympics in 2004, under Peter Fortune, uh, I'd really ramped up my amount of kilometres mm. that I was running. So when I was with my dad, I was sort of doing that, you know, 30 kilometres a week sort of thing. But with Peter, that had slowly built up to probably being more, you know, 60 to 80, maybe even in winter getting up towards 90, 100, which is, you know, a big increase for myself, still not where the other guys, you know, were in in terms of the 800, but mm. it was a lot more kilometres that I'd been doing. Um, so my body had gotten used to doing more kilometres and uh, whenever I tried to do after the ankle surgery, once my kilometres got up to about 40 yeah, kilometres a week, I'd start to get sore again. If I was just running every second day easily for doing, you know, five, six kilometre runs every second day, it was okay. Mm. As soon as I started to try and increase that, it would start to get sore. And, you know, you can't be an international no. runner when you can only do six kilometre jogs every second, no. every second day. And I guess then the calf issues started coming, but that I got no doubt that was related in part to the the lower down the chain there. That was in a time where you were still you were still looking at coming back to competitive running, if not international running. Yeah, the calves were uh, quite a, uh, when I got to sort of thirty. So uh, the ankle is what sort of stopped me between twenty four, so two thousand and four yeah. and two thousand and ten. Um, that was that was all ankle and and yeah so the car by the times i started having the calf issues um any sort of chance of getting back into it and finish yeah, by then yeah definitely um, you just wanted to you, you just wanted to run competitively and then that was also put put to bed i guess with the the continual calf work at speed tell us about the footy career the current afl career that he's he's played at a couple of clubs old kmac now tell us you started at Mornington, I know that, which is in the local local league down here. Tell us about the last five, six years enjoying what you couldn't do when you were younger as a pro athlete. Yeah, so I started getting into fo- playing football because uh, it's one of those things you can never do when you're when you're running. You can't do those things that you would normally enjoy doing, such as football or skiing, snowboarding, any of those high risk, I guess, activities you couldn't really afford to do. So um, when I got to about the age of 30, I thought I might as well uh, have a crack at football and um, actually went down to Mornington as the fitness coach um, 
under uh, the the main coach there was a guy called Josh Beard, who's uh, coached around the local traps for many many years, and he got me down there as the fitness coach. Um, but they had a bit of a, a lot of players leave the year before, and um, I think I was the tallest there at the time, the fitness coach. So round one, they're throwing me into the ruck um, against Ashims from YCW. So that was a bit of a le- steep learning curve. Think David and Goliath. <laughs> so, if you don't know football, well, know. I did. I did ask him what he was weighing. I think he said he was about one twenty, and I was about eighty at that time. So he had forty kilos on me, which is tough in a ruck battle, but. Uh, anyway, it was just yeah, really good fun to get out there and, and do a team sport, having always done an individual sport. Um, so I enjoyed just running around out there. Uh, played at Mornington for a couple of years um, and then uh, was helping out another uh, mate over in Endeavour Hills in a game and did my knee there. Uh, dislocated the knee and fractured the, um, the knee bone and did, did quite a bit of damage. So didn't play for quite a few years but I've come back in the last couple of years just uh, having some social games for the with the Carrum Cowboys who are an over 35s football team so that's all um, all fun and and um, a, a game that's at my pace now the uh, <laughs> playing playing you, in the NFL is just a bit too quick for you were good enough age. to win the best and fairest last year so don't be so modest what posse are you playing at the moment um, where was it this year I played on ball mostly which is uh, Ruck Rover or Ruck uh, no, 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 just just, 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 just on the just on the ball. Good work. Um, they have some rules in the over thirty fives, which doesn't work to my advantage. You're not allowed to put your knees up, and uh, anyone that's ever done any high jump knows that's how you actually get your height when you jump. So I'm not I'm not that tall for a ruckman, but I used to when I was playing in the normal local footy, I'd run and jump onto them to hit the ball out because they're obviously always a lot bigger than me, but. In the uh, over 35s, you're not allowed to do that. So the ruck doesn't work quite as well for me there. So uh, yeah, they've taken away your major strength, K Mac. Yeah. So I, I was played a lot on the ball, uh, a little bit of centre half forward as well. So uh, just just wherever they sort of need me. But yeah. I wouldn't want to. Still wouldn't want to be playing on you because I know there's not many getting around as quick as you, especially over the age of 35. I reckon a few of those old fellas would be. Dreading the side of K-Mac, walking up to him at the centre bounce. Now, mate, we're nearly onto the quick fire questions, but you're absolutely, you've got a massive passion for Melbourne in the AFL, the Melbourne Demons now. For the listeners, they're about to go to a prelim this week, which is massive for them. They've been 12 years in the finals wilderness in the Australian Football League. K-Mac's just bought his tickets to WA. He's got his AFL tickets, so we're in Victoria here, situated, well, it's a four-hour flight to WA, so he's got his, him and his brother are ducking over pump for this weekend mate oh i don't know if pump's the right word uh, apprehensive at the moment you know you just uh having not been in finals for so long um you know it'd be great to go over there and see them play and tell the listeners about when we lived together how good they were the d's the d's these did struggle a little bit i remember rick coming home and rubbing it in the fact that geelong had won by about 150 points i never rubbed it in that's that's, that's, that? that's rubbish that's oh. not true <laughs> he remembers it that way because he was sooking on the couch because the demons got done by 20 goals again but i never ever ever rubbed it in i'm too much of a football person for that <laughs> to be, to be <laughs> not serious. the way i remember k-mac has, has put up with a lot him and his brother and some of his mates used to go every week when they were rubbish and and it's true loyalty and true football and in victoria football is a religion so they used to go and get them, watch them get done by 20 goals. So I'm stoked for all the Melbourne supporters out there. It's third year in a row we've had a bit of a fairy tale with the Bulldogs of 16, Tigers of 17, and hopefully, fingers crossed for all the Melbourne supporters, they can get over the line this week against West Coast. So K-Mac will be over there celebrating, I reckon, just as hard as 
when he won his Manchester bronze if they get up. Quick fire, great man. Favourite session to do? Oh, I always like the hill sessions. Um, I'm not sure why. There's always that sense of accomplishment when you do a really good hill session. Um, you know, you stand down the bottom, you look up to the top. and uh, So hill sessions were always a, a favourite of mine to do. Sand dunes as well, wasn't it? Is that just for you as well? Uh, I did sand dunes, but probably um, for those that live down the Mornington Peninsula, I used to do some sessions up Oliver's Hill. I think you might have come to a couple of those, Rick, and we did yeah. ones down at um, Half Moon Bay there in Hampton. Uh, so just just on any surface, um, but just the hills would always, you could vary them too. So you do some short ones, you might do 20 second really fast reps, or you might do 40 second lactic reps, or you might even do ones like Oliver's Hill, which would take about two minutes, I think, to run yeah. from bottom to top. A minute so. 50 for you, two minutes for me. They were very, 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 very painful. But the physiological stuff from the hills is unbelievable. You can, you can change it so much in like the 15, 20 second hills. For marathoners, like you've got Canova and Brad Hudson giving 15-second anaerobic kills, 10-second anaerobic kills. Mm. So, really, they can really manipulate that session. Least favourite session? Uh, I didn't like any of the uh, long reps on track. So, your things like um, your things like your one one k and above on track. I didn't like to do. I preferred to do them, you know, on grass or around, you know, out away from just doing going around and rounds in circles. Uh, and but the, probably the hardest session was the uh, uh, four times four hundreds off five minutes. So that was a really really high lactic session where you're trying to do sort of fifty two or sub fifty two second four hundred meter pace. So pretty quick and. Then you've then you've got that lactic. So the first two are okay, but once you get to that third one, trying to get keep that under fifty two or around that fifty two second mark, the lactic really starts to pile up, and that used to be a very very difficult session that you'd um, very very unlikely that you would not throw up after after doing that session. Sounds like just a fantastic way to spend an afternoon. You've articulated that so brilliantly, K Mac. Finally, mate, what's your ideal day? What's an ideal day in the life of KMAC just now or over the next year or two? Where do you see yourself? Oh, there's a couple of different options. I like to either go up the go up the mountains when there's uh, good cover of snow and do a little bit of snowboarding. Uh, I'm not very good at it, but it's just got that uh, sense of freedom now. You'd be quite lanky on a board, I reckon. Yeah, you, you yeah I'll, probably look a, I'll probably look a little bit not up. Not very compact. Not very compact. Yeah, I'm <laughs> probably a slightly different build to Sean White, but... Uh, yeah, no, so it's just good, just that sense of freedom, being able to, you know, cruise down. That's that, get that same sort of high as what you'd get when you're, you know, racing and doing all that sort of thing. So I enjoy doing that. Or uh, going over to New York and um, watching the uh, New York Rangers play, getting some tickets to Madison Square Garden. That's also uh, be an ideal day as well, as long as the Rangers win. The Rangers, he's a big Rangers man. We went to a Rangers game once together, me and K-Mac. What's this pub you talk about in New York that you love so much? Uh, McSorley's. So it's the, uh, I think it's the oldest pub in New York and it's where uh, Abraham Lincoln used to drink. But uh, it's... Uh, history? It's, it's, it's famous in New York. It's the, it was the last of the uh, male-only pubs until they were forced to uh, take female patrons in the late 1970s. But they haven't changed their decor since... Uh, uh, the, the turn of the last century, so the 1900s. Okay. And uh, same so dunnies and everything. Everything's, I think, pretty much the same. They've got the sawdust on the on the Wowzers. floor still. They've got the uh, newspaper articles up of when Abraham Lincoln was uh, shot still up there. They've okay. Got, um, they've got the wishbones above the bar, and those are the wishbones of all, before the 
First World War, all the soldiers would go in and have their last turkey meal there before going overseas. And when they came back, they'd take their wishbones back. It's pretty cool. Bit of history. Uh, but And the wishbones are the ones up there of the guys who never came back. So they're, oh, they're, still, they're still sitting above the bar there. So it's this bar that's got a lot of, um, lot of history to it. Uh, it's been in the same spot for 150, 160 years there in New York. And they only serve two types of drinks, light beer and dark beer. So your draft and your stouts, they're your only two options when you go to McSorley's. Sounds good to me. I'm going to have to pay McSorley's a visit. And any listeners out there that haven't been in the New York area, surely it's famous for you guys. K-Mac, thanks so much, mate. Now, it won't be the last time we get you on. We'll get you on in the summer just to give uh, a bit of a rundown of the athletics in the summer season for the um, the Australian domestic season, but thanks for your time, mate. You've uh, you've popped in out of your way just to come and have a beer with me. So amazing career, and um, he's got a lot to hang his hat on. But he's not done yet. He'll continue to dominate in the Aussie rules scene and just life in general. Thanks, mate. Cheers, Rick. Thanks, buddy. Good work. Chris McCarthy, what a story. You found a couple of good guests to get us rolling here. Not bad to get you rolling, is it? Yeah, he's a good one. And look, from a obviously four years of absolute peak performance, like at the genuine pointy end of world sport, and all things going right, he probably should have been a household name in Australia, but obviously just wasn't to be. On a Wheaties box. On a Wheaties box, no doubt. But what? just quickly, the takeaway from a, a coach's corner type segment, the polarisation in his training, compared to some of those long-distance, middle-distance guys of his time. So he was running 30K a week, and he's running, he's, he's winning races in Europe, whereas some of his contemporaries are running 120 and also winning races in Europe. So you can see the 800-metre, 1500-metre, how it really is. You could really go either way, and it really fascinates me, that kind of stuff. Obviously, once you get to 5 and 10K, like we train mostly at runners and above, it's obviously, you need you need the mileage, you need the high-intensity work as well. But Chris got by purely on lactic work and sure worked wonders for him. Sustained speed, that sort of... High-sustained speed, high my sustained brother. Speed. Yeah, he, he... But, like, we're coming... We're talking... Arthur Liddy and all these guys brought in 800-metre runners doing 160, 170k a week for two laps of the Oval. Wow. Now that That's obviously very, very different to some. Some are probably maxed out about 80 to 100k a week. But Chris was doing 30 at his peak. Wow. Very interesting yeah. case. So I reckon I find that fascinating. I think a lot of you guys that listen and maybe like to improve their 3K or 1500 metre time, that kind that kind of stuff can definitely resonate with you. Now, listeners, we're at the end of the official stuff. As always, I'll give him Mick Sharkey a little bit of his time. Now, he tells me he's got a good one. Is it time for my running joke, Rick? It's the running joke. Let's go to the running joke before I mean any more further. Now, there were two options this week. I will say that. One of them was food-based. Okay. But I've gone a little left field with a little risque version. Um, Risque? Yeah, so there is a PG warning on this. PG? I hope it's bloody PG. PG warning. He hasn't ran this by me. There'll be no kids listening to this. Mm, Here we go. Go with it. What do you call a 13-year-old girl from Tasmania who can run faster than her six brothers? Oh no! What? What, Michael? A virgin. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's it for Mick Sharkey. You won't be hearing Mick Sharkey on episode face. three. I'll give you the tip. He's just done his dash. You I would, love Tassie. It'll be yeah. Sorry, Tasmania. It's a beautiful part of the world. We love Tassie as well. Do you know how many runners members are from Tassie, Mick? You've just ostracised so many of them. But listen, in all seriousness, we are only joking, Mick Sharkey. 
Are you going to be back for episode three, or are you going to you going to behave well, yourself? Unless I get run down by a group of Tasmanian brothers, then I probably will be. We've got a lot of Taswegians in this studio, <laughs> so thanks so much, listeners. Our next um, episode is an Ironman triathlete. You're going to have a great time. He's a general population superstar. He's dropped 30 kilos on his journey. Wow. So I reckon you will resonate with a lot of you guys that are on the or fit your own fitness journey. But I'll get to that next week. Thanks, Mick Sharkey. Thank you, Rick. Thanks, listeners. Have a beautiful day.